Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Welcome to CBC this morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor here. However you're joining us today, whether it's in the room live, live stream, or later on, we're glad you're worshiping with us. I'm going to start this morning with another scripture reading, because our middle name is Bible, so you can't do that too much at the crossroads, and it's going to be from Colossians 1. It says in verse 13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. I was listening to a podcast this week, and it was this Lutheran pastor, and she was talking about people in her church and people that, that leave the faith. Because I don't know if you guys know people that leave the faith, but I do sometimes. And she had an interesting observation. She said to this interviewer that no matter how many times people come up to me and said that I have left the faith and I don't follow Jesus anymore, she said, not once has somebody come up to me and said, I was raised Christian, but that Jesus guy doesn't have much to offer, right? No matter how many people decide to walk away from following Jesus or from Christianity, she made an observation that said, rarely is it ever, and she's never experienced people walking away because Jesus was the problem, because Jesus didn't have something to give them, because Jesus wasn't loving or kind through the stories that we read in the Gospels. We're talking about Colossians, we're picking up in chapter two, and why we started in chapter one is because it paints this beautiful picture of who Jesus is. A God who's in control, a God who reflects the goodness of God in all he does, and a God who ultimately redeems, restores, and fixes a broken world, something we all desperately cry out for from the rocks to your pets to me and you, the beauty of Jesus. And what we have to understand when we talk about our culture is that our culture reflects our values every time. You have, you have many cultures, like just maybe your family, and usually that's the values of your individual families that go with the professions you have. If your parents are accountants, I'm betting that your culture in your family revolves around the second week in April, right? My family, we have a high point on Sunday morning that we build up to and pair down from. In our current society now, I think our culture in the flow-mo really revolves around this, the beginning of and the end of the school year, which is why the last few weeks have been so difficult for so many people, cultures revolve around and reflect what they revolve around or value. Paul is going to make a case in Colossians 2. He made this beautiful case for why Jesus is good in Colossians 1, and we spent nine or ten weeks there last fall. You can go back and listen for your homework this week, but just keep in mind that was before COVID. They were big boy sermons. We're talking 45 to 50 minutes of goodness or whatever I did that week, right? 
But, but I will say that what Paul's going to do is he's going to move from a Christological lens, move from a theology of Jesus to say, now let me tell you how that matters to you. Let me tell you how that shapes your culture. Let me tell you what I just read. Let me tell you how that extends to your day-to-day. Let me tell you why it matters. Because your culture is going to reflect what you value. Don't miss out on valuing Jesus because people don't leave the church because Jesus has nothing to offer. So before we get into our text this morning, you can have a Bible. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It was just read up there. We're going to do our thing and pray a little bit. Because we believe at CBC that God called us here in this space, in this moment, in this time for a purpose, and we have to fight. We have to fight the culture of criticalness that we come in with. That Jesus is offering us right now, the Holy Spirit is calling us to join him in a conversation of faith, and we want to be contributors, not critics. So you got to put aside your lens of things were said in different ways than I thought they should be, or this kid talks too fast or too loud, and we got to ask the Holy Spirit, What are you doing today, and how is God teaching me, growing me, shaping me, that I might be able to reflect more of the beauty of Jesus to the world around me? So we're going to ask the Holy Spirit help with this morning. So I'm going to say a prayer, ask you to pray silently to yourself, and I'll ask you to pray for me that I might do a good job today. Let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful for who you are, that we can come together in so many different ways from so many different places this morning and talk about the centrality of Jesus in our culture as a church, as a, as a mom, as a dad, as, a, as an accountant, as a teacher, as whatever we do, the centrality of Christ. As we open your scripture this morning, Holy Spirit, teach us, lead us, and guide us. That we might see more of Christ's beauty um, as we dwell on his scripture today. I'd ask that you take a couple seconds and just say a quiet prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit do a work in your spirit this morning. And I ask that you spend a couple seconds and pray for me, that I might do a good job communicating the character of God, the centrality of Christ in our text this morning. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said... Amen. Let's get into it. The verse starts, the chapter starts in verse 1. Paul begins like this. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for those who we have not met or I have not met face to face. And so I think the beginning of this, what Paul is doing is setting his tone for the rest of what he's going to say in chapter 2 and 3 when he really speaks into the community about how they're supposed to live. And he starts by saying, I need you to know the great struggle that I have for you. That word struggle there is seen a few different times in the New Testament, predominantly relating to athletic ventures. So like Hebrew 12.1, when he says that I've run the race and completed and look forward to Jesus, that, that verse, that word race, is the same word here for struggle. What Paul is saying is I'm working really hard on your behalf. He's saying, I don't know if you played sports in junior high or high school, or if you're 10 or 15 years past high school, you're probably all state level. You know what I'm talking about? The legend grows as time passes. It does in my world. And I remember my football team in high school, every time the fourth quarter came, we would put our fours in the air and we'd just start yelling like banshees because that made us more excited. And what it was supposed to do was give us this impression that we were leaving everything we had on the field. 
And if you guys have watched the ESPN Michael Jordan documentary, it made me feel all the feels of my 90s growing upness and how much I really wanted the Jordan 11s. And if you know what those are, we're going to be friends. And he had a game in 1997. It was game five against the Utah Jazz. And it's known as the flu game. And essentially, I'll spare you all the details, but he went off for like 38 points and seven rebounds. He had a fever of 102-something. It turns out he might actually have food poisoning. He made a three-pointer at the end of the game to clinch the win for the Bulls that went on to win the championship in the next game because whomever wins game fives when it's tied two games apiece goes on to win the series most of the time. And at the end of the game, he was so exhausted, his teammates had to carry him off the court. There's this iconic picture of him leaning on Scottie Pippen and he's being carried off the court because he left everything he had on the court for his team. When Paul says, I'm struggling for you, that's what he means. He's in prison right now about 1,300 miles away and he's been beaten for his faith and he's been imprisoned for his faith and he's fighting against evil and against the Roman Empire and against other people and religious sects and he says, I, I am struggling for you. I'm leaving everything I have out there on the floor on your behalf, and that matters. Let me t- tell you why that matters. Because Colossae was not a city most people struggled for. That's really important. This is one of my favorite things about this book, is, is the overwhelmingly smallness of this city. So Colossae used to be, just a real bit, uh, little bit of context, Colossae was a really big city. For a long time, there's this road that ran from Ephesus, huge city, to the sea, and Colossus was right on that road. So about four or 500 BC, about 550 years before this was written, it was a huge, thriving metropolis. There's one writer from the 5th century BC, and he says, and I quote, Colossae is a populous city, wealthy and of considerable magnitude. But, but things changed. Around the second century BC, Rome came in and started building their roads like they do. And as they built their roads, their roads went through two other cities on either side. It went through Laodicea and Heropolis, about 12 miles on each side of Colossae. And it's kind of like Route 67 now, right? It died when the interstates got built. What was flourishing doesn't anymore. Small town Iowa isn't necessarily thriving right now. And so... What happened to Colossae is it started to lose commerce and lose people and lose significance. And then the fate of the world was against it. There was two earthquakes in 17 AD and in, in I think, 50 or 60 AD, and it wrecked the city. And while Laodicea and Heropolis got built up again, Colossae never really did. So much so, you have to understand that by 400 AD, the city didn't exist anymore. It was completely gone. One commentator said this, Colossae was the very least important church to which any epistle of St. Paul was addressed. Here's why I think that really matters is because we value, I value humanity, values big things and winners, not small things and losers. And do you know how I know that's true? Because I've watched three Dallas Stars games in the last week. Do you know how many Stars games I watched the entire season before this week? That's right, zero, everybody, zero. Because they're in the Western Conference Final and they might actually win something. So I'm breaking out my star shirt that I bought in 1999 when they won the Stanley Cup and I'm all in right now, you know? We like big things and we like winners and that's what we gravitate towards. Paul writes a letter to a church that was dying, to a city that was about to be dead. Paul writes a letter and says, for you guys, for you guys with the big city, for you guys I care and I struggle. Think about that. Think about how that would make you feel if you're a Christian there. And why that matters is because before Paul gets into any instruction, before he gets into any 
um, you know, harsher words about how they're supposed to live and who they're supposed to be. And if they're reflecting the values of Jesus, what Paul does is he's building his credibility on care and compassion. And that's really important. He's saying, I'm going to speak to you as a theologian. I'm going to speak to you as a church planner. I'm going to speak to you as a pastor. But I'm going to speak to you out of love and care and compassion. It's the platform through which we build credibility when we talk about the centrality of Christ all the time. Jesus did it. Paul did it. We're supposed to do it too. The question we ask ourselves is when we communicate to others, do we communicate to others on the currency of compassion and care? Because Paul's saying, I struggle for you and I love you. And sometimes, especially now with social media warriors, I'm just too concerned that the church might be too concerned about being right instead of being caring. <laughs> you know? And we as a church are called to communicate as Paul does, saying you are small and you are insignificant, but I am writing you because I'm struggling for you just like I am for the other cities. So he says up front, you, Colossae, I struggle for you in the other cities. And then he has some goals if you get to the next section. He says, my goal, I love when they lay it out for us, black and white. He says, my goal is that their hearts having been knit together in love. So he's kind of setting the tone for the conditions of the church itself. And just so we can have some refresher on what heart means there, we have to divorce our understanding of heart from a 2020 Western individualistic context and, and figure out what he meant in uh, AD 60, primarily Jewish context. And, and when they said heart, they didn't mean emotion. When I think heart, I think only emotion all the time because that's what it comes to mean for us. But they didn't have the knowledge of the body we had. And so when they say heart, they literally mean the seat of who you are as a person. And you can go back through the scriptures and see how it's used in mostly the Old Testament, that how the heart represented how you felt, the heart represented what you thought, the heart represented who you were spiritually, the heart represented all things that you had physically. The heart, as one commentator put it, I love this phrase, is the experiencing and motivating I. The heart was all you were and all you wanted to become. It was who you were. So when he says that I want to, my goal is that their hearts having been together in love. He's not just saying, I want you to feel the tingly feels of love. Sure, that's part of it, but it's way bigger, way more complex, way deeper, way richer than just emotion. Emotion's not bad though. So he's saying, here's what I want. My goal is that all of who they are having been knit together in love. So he's creating this condition for this church community, for this church family. He's saying, so they have to understand I'm struggling for you that all of who you are, all of who you are, you might know, has been knit together in love. That word knit together there implies a familial relationship. And one of the things I think we overlook necessarily in the West is the community forwardness of the biblical culture. One of my favorite books, literally one of my favorite books in the entire world is written by a guy named Joseph Hellerman. He writes and says, it's called When the Church Was a Family. Uh, and he says, the idea of salvation cannot be reduced to a personal relationship with Jesus. God's plan is much more encompassing. God intends for salvation to be a community-creating event. When he said their hearts were knit together, what he's saying is what Jesus said on the cross, I'm creating a new family. I'm creating a new way to do life with the people that follow me. Your first allegiance is to the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the cross that reconciles all people. And so what he's saying is your hearts are knit together in a special way. 
It's hard for us to grasp and grapple with as Westerners, you know. Our identity is so many other things than who we are in Jesus. But he says again and again, your identity first and foremost is not your family anymore, which it would have been in their culture. It is who you are in Jesus. That's why he starts the letter and says in verse 1 and 2, I'm writing to the saints because that's how Christ sees us. And so he's saying that you have this family and I want your hearts being, this is what happens, your hearts are knit together in love. This overwhelming foreness for one another, this overwhelming desire that love means so much more than just I like you, but I am for you and I'm for what's good for you, which might mean that I have to tell you what's wrong with what's bad for you if you don't see it. I am for you. I love what Scott McKnight says about God's love. He says God's covenant love is the commitment of presence advocacy and protection, and his commitment entails both summoning his people into and providing for their transformation into Christ's likeness. The love of God is so deep and rich and everywhere that it fought for the goodness of people to be more like Jesus. And so Paul starts this letter by saying, here's who I am. I'm a guy that's struggling for you because I care for you. Here's who you are. You're a new family that's been knit together with this supernatural love that nobody can explain, the supernatural love that gives you new identity and new hope. You are this new family that's going to be defined by how well you love one another. That's what I love about this letter. See, the city in this church was made up of a bunch of people from all over the world because it was a trade city. And so you had poor people and rich people, you had women and men, you had slaves and landowners, you had all these people coming together, calling themselves the Church of Christ. And to be honest with you, in the first century, that really really confused most other people, that you could get together with people not like your people and say, we have a common purpose that is bigger and better than the things that keep us apart. That's why unity is so emphasized in all of Paul's letter, because when you're united, people see what unites you and not what divides you. It's a call for them to be a new family together. And especially now, you can translate that to our current culture and context all you want. There's so many applicable avenues to do that, but God is calling us to be a united front for the kingdom of God because it's so easy to focus on what divides and so much more difficult to say we have differences, but what unites us is bigger and better and worth it. It's just worth it, you know? And so when he writes through this letter, he's talking about the love that's gonna keep them together. And he says, you are now a new family, And let me tell you what that does. Here's my goal for you, that you know who you are, you know that I care about you, that might motivate you to find God's same love for the people that are in your new faith family. And then here's what that's going to do for you if you look at the next verse. This is what a knit together community can do. It says that you may be encouraged. (laughs) So once we find the depth of God's love for his people, Once we understand God's love for us and it translates into how we live with others around us, you know one of the first things that kind of love does? It just encourages us. It it just encourages us to, to know that there are all these people that might not be like me that still love me. To know that there are all these people that might not believe what I believe about fill in the blank there but still value me. To know that I have a new family that's bound together by something that can't be torn apart. That is an encouraging, encouraging, encouraging fact. A few years ago, I say a few years ago, 
15 years ago. Man, I'm bad at that lately. <laughs> a long time ago. Time in 2020 is completely messed up. I was an undergrad, actually, and I had a prof one time pull me aside. And we're all training to be pastors, right? And uh, they said, hey, Charlie, I'm going to encourage you to do something. I said, what? They said, you need to have an encouragement box. And they said, every time somebody writes you something that's nice, and sometimes that happens, uh, put it in this box. Because there's going to be days and times and weeks and months when you're not going to feel encouraged, but you need to know that the coming together of people that worship God together is an encouraging element in your life. And when you have days of despair and days of doubt, read those letters. Look back on the moments of encouragement and remember the things that people told you that came from the heart of God. Because I love what one pastor said as I was reading this week. He said, discouragement becomes a breeding ground for doubt. And Paul's going to get into doubt in a, couple, in a couple verses. And he says, so take that away. Because in every part of our life, if we are so discouraged, oftentimes doubt follows, whether it's my marriage or my job. I don't feel loved. I must not be good at X, Y, and Z. My kid's not listening. I must be a bad parent here, here, and here, right? Um, and so... As we realize what this common bond in love does, first and foremost, we have to realize that it just encourages us when and where we need it. This morning, a buddy of mine from college, undergrad, who I haven't talked to in probably a decade, because I'm a great friend, he, um, he planted a church in South Bend, Indiana, better him than me, he planted a church in South Bend, Indiana, and today was their launch day. Um, and I said, are you trying to take away from the cowboy season opener, but he didn't respond, and and I said just this morning in an email, man, I haven't talked to you in like 10 years, but it's been too long, and I'm so excited for you and your wife, and I'm praying for you and rooting for you today. Be encouraged, because this text shows me that when we come together under the banner of Jesus as a new faith family, the primary purpose of that love is to encourage us that might dissuade us from doubt. And then he goes on in the text. He said, not only does this kind of love dissuade us from doubt, does it encourage us, but it also adds more depth to the call of, it adds more depth to actually following Jesus in the first place. And so he says in the next phrase, that they may have all the riches that assurance brings in their understanding of the knowledge of the mystery of God. So let's pause for a sec. When it says knowledge of the mystery of God, that's Jesus. We tackled that last fall when we did Colossians. They hadn't yet realized the full plan of God for the people of God yet. And so really what Paul says is you Jewish people could never understand that Jesus is for all people. You thought he was just for you. Surprise. The mystery of God is Jesus is for all people and God's been for all people for all time. So open the doors wide open and let's look at how deep, wide, and all the other song lyrics the love of Christ really is, right? And so he said, the mystery of God is Jesus. And he says, so it's going to encourage you and also it's going to bring assurance in your understanding of the knowledge of the mystery, the knowledge of Jesus. And he kind of makes this argument in chapter 1, verse 24, 5, and 6. He has a phrase. He says, I'm going to quote it, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill up in my physical body for the sake of the church what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Tough little passage there, but he doesn't mean Jesus didn't die enough. He doesn't mean Jesus didn't suffer enough. What he's saying is, you might not understand the sufferings of Jesus, but when I suffer for you, you get a bigger, fuller, richer picture of what Jesus did for you. So our, Paul's willingness to suffer on behalf of other people paints a deeper and richer picture of Christ that suffered for them if they had never met him. And so what he's saying here, essentially, is that when we live out this kind of love in our communities, it gives us assurance that the claims of Jesus are good and worth it and true. 
when we live in this kind of faith family that is bound together in the love of God, what we see is this beautiful encouragement that reassures our faith when doubt might come, because doubt's going to come because he's going to get there next. This week, I actually, um, <laughs> I remembered, I, I got a text from a former student, and I'm getting a few of those lately just because now, you know, we're on the interwebs, and and, and, and she said, hey, how you doing? Da, da, da. Went back and forth, hadn't seen her in a long time. And I said, you are responsible for one of my three most awkward youth pastor moments. And um, I have a couple that are really, really good that I'll get into some other time. And she said, really? She said, what was it? We're texting back and forth. And I said, I was new to this gig. And, you know, I just wanted to meet students where they were in public places and let them know that I cared for them. And, and so she was trying out for her eighth grade soccer team. And she was not athletic, like so woefully far from it. She was going out on a limb here, okay? And I didn't have the heart to tell her don't, but um, she said, can you come watch my tryout? And I said, ah, yeah. I mean, sure. You know, it was like Tuesday at 10 a.m. It was at her middle school. The problem was, you know, it wasn't an open tryout, but there's a park about 200 yards from her middle school. So I said, sure, I'll just go pull up in the park. I'll watch you for 10 minutes, wave at you so you know that you're loved and encouraged. And I was like, cool, not a problem. Okay, here's what I didn't realize. I was new to the game, guys. Hadn't thought this all the way through. I pull up to this park, and I was the only one there. Uh, I was way, way, way too old to be a friend and way, way, way too young to be a parent at this point in my life. And this was before social media exploded, so I couldn't just bury my head in my phone. And I realized when I got there that I am in this parking lot 200 yards from an eighth-grade girl's soccer tryout watching them, and this might not look great. And if I looked left, there was this group of moms working out that was probably 45 to 50-ish at 10 a.m. And so I couldn't look right or left without looking like a really creepy dude at that point. So I say that to say this. I was texting her that this week, and I said, I didn't know what to do. And she said, oh, my God, I forgot about that. That's so incredible. And she said, I am so overwhelmed right now with emotion for how encouraging that was. I didn't know I was that well-loved that early on. When we love people that well, even if it means that we're in awkward situations sometimes, it means that people get a fuller picture of what the gospel is all about. It's what we talk about when we say the gospel is not just intellectual, but it's incarnational. It's not just transactional. It's transformational. Paul's saying, but there are things you don't know about Jesus yet, and there are doubts you're going to have. You know what helps those doubts? People around you that love like God loves. You know what helps build assurance in the goodness and the worthiness and the trustworthiness of Jesus? The love of God, seen through the people of God. And so he said, this is my hope, that you might be a new knit family bound together in love. And when that happens in your community, be encouraged and be assured that what you're following is true. Because then he gets into the heart of the matter. And he says, because as a culture, what you're going to reflect is the centrality of Jesus and all of who you are. He says, the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's a huge statement, by the way. Don't have time to unpack it all. When he says all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge from a Jewish context, you automatically go back to Proverbs 2 there. So, so wisdom in the Jewish mindset was kind of this force that God created the world with. And that's how they taught it. That's what Proverbs 2 and Proverbs 8 talks about. It talks about wisdom as being this force all around us that God created the world with. And when we live into wisdom, we live into God's design for the world. 
And so it's something all around us all the time that we can kind of pick and choose from. And it, it uses the word wisdom in the Old Testament to really talk about doing what's right for the right reasons to bring God's right restoration to the world. And so when Paul says that phrase that Jesus Christ who are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, what he's doing is he's saying all the things you thought about wisdom, the right ordering of God's world is found in and through Jesus. He's saying everything you need for godliness, for spirituality, for how to live with one another is found in and through the person and work of Jesus. And here's the deal. I need to be reminded of that. I need to. I think we all need to. Every two years, there's a survey that comes out put together by a couple big named Christian organizations. And it's called the State of Theology. And it came out actually this week. There's some pretty fascinating finds in there, but if we're not careful, if we're not careful, what we see is our view of Jesus, that is the central point of our culture as followers of Jesus, changes if we don't have a right understanding of who Jesus is. And it said in this poll, it said two-thirds of evangelicals, 65%, affirmed the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest created being by God. And then it went on, and it said it more uh, kind of said it clearer. It said out of that, 30% of evangelicals believe that Jesus um, was not God, but instead thought he was a great teacher. So, so we might come here every day as, as, as followers of Jesus at CBC that never miss a Sunday. And we might come here and be like, how can people not believe that Jesus is all the things that he said he was in Colossians 1, that Jesus is God? Because over time, sometimes if we don't focus on the centrality of Jesus, we lose the beauty of Jesus. We, we lose the understanding that he is fully God. And that's what the writer is saying here to this Jewish and mixed audience is that Jesus is everything that God is. That's why Colossians 1, it says, God was pleased of the fullness of all who dwelt in him. N.T. Wright says it like this, everything we might want to ask about God and his purposes can and must now be answered. That is the force of this verse with reference to the crucified and risen Jesus. This verse is the high point of the Christological lens of the entire book of Colossians. He's saying that all things that we need are found in and through Jesus. This is what you wrap your community around. And it becomes more real, and it becomes more beautiful as we love well because we love with the love of God, because we're bound together by something bigger. And so he's encouraging them to focus on this and run toward this and live like this. And I love the phrases he uses throughout this text. So he calls it, he says, find the richness of the assurance and, and the treasure of wisdom. He uses kind of this language of, if you will, like a treasure hunt. And, and I think he does it for a reason because the pursuit of Jesus should be something that is exciting and should be something that is beautiful and should be something that is worth our while. It is not digging through the dirt to find the mud, right? This is, this is the best thing that there is because Jesus is worth it. I did a little reading this week on um, kind of the great California gold rush of 1948. When people run after treasure, man, we run after treasure, you know? And, and I love what it said. It said in March of 1948, there were 157,000 people in California. By the mid-1950s, there were more than 300,000 people. That meant that one out of every 90 people in America lived in California at that point because there was gold, and so people went running. Have you guys ever heard of the lost treasure of Forrest, Forrest Finn? I think is his name. I'm going to double check. Yeah, the lost treasure of Forrest Finn. You know what that is? I found this out this summer, and I loved it. 
Forrest Finn is a millionaire who was 80 years old 10 years ago, and he wanted people to recapture their love for nature. And so he took a 10 by 10 box, and he said somewhere on the west side of the Rockies that stretches from Montana in the States all the way down to wherever it stretches down to, I went to Jesus school, not geography school, and... And he buried this 10 by 10 box with gold and rare gemstones. He said it's worth over $2 million. He wrote a book and he said, all the clues that you need to find my treasure are in that book. 10 years ago, somebody found it this summer, right? So he wanted them to gain their love and affection for the outdoors again. It was crazy. He said three years ago that he's been contacted by well over 250,000 people that have tried to find this thing, that ran for it, that left their jobs for it. He said four people at least has died from it. And then he stopped and said, guys, It's not in a dangerous place. I hid this thing when I was 80. You can find it. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) So when he was 90, somebody found it. He didn't disclose his name, but he confirmed that it was found. And my point there simply is the pursuit of treasure is something that's delightful, that rises to the top of the priority list. When Paul talks about the centrality of Jesus, it's something that's delightful, that rises to the top of our priority list. And he says it, So that the second thing in verse four might not happen. He says, I say this so that no one will deceive you through arguments that sound reasonable. We're going to get into it more next week, but but Colossians um, is a book written to a city that that started to have some people coming in and saying some things about Jesus, that he wasn't enough, that that actually you needed to know more if you really want to know God. You could only know it from certain teachers and people. I have more understanding than you that you can't find in who Jesus was, so come and follow me. And Paul's writing here and he's saying, no. You don't need that. You don't need anything else other than Jesus. Don't be led astray by other people that say you need more. And he kind of builds on this case that as we grow in the centrality of Jesus emotionally and spiritually and physically and intellectually, it will help us as a community not be deceived by other arguments that sound reasonable. Because if I'm honest, if you're honest, you've probably heard some, some compelling reasons on why Jesus doesn't make sense. Right? Right? I know I'm not supposed to say that as a pastor on a stage, but, but I think that sometimes it's what maturity looks like, growing in our understanding that what Jesus said is true and real. It's why I love when people have really difficult conversations, because then we get an opportunity to push through those and find the beauty on the other side, not simply stop short. I love and some of the hardest questions I, I don't necessarily have great answers for. But when I know the love of God and when I've experienced the love of God, I can trust the love of God in the middle of situations and circumstances and answers that I don't know fully well all the way. A decade or so ago, Tim Keller was being interviewed by uh, a guy at NYU. And I don't think this man was a believer. And he said, man, what do you do with people that don't trust in Jesus? He said, do you think they're going to go to hell? And, And Keller had a fun way of saying yes. And, um, and then it got to, you know, all the things. So then who does go to hell? What about kids that have never heard? What about, you know, it goes all the way to that thing. That's a hard question. It's a really hard question. And here, I loved his answer. He said, I don't know. He said, here's what I do know. I do know that the God that I serve and follow is more compassionate than he ever should be. And so I know whatever answer is to that question that I might not know the answer to, I won't be disappointed in God's response. It's beautiful. This idea that as we grow in our faith, make Jesus the center, live it out well, love really well, we understand that those arguments that sometimes can seem appealing as we flesh them out don't compare to the beauty and centrality of Christ. And here's how he ends it. He says, we need each other in the process. Though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit, rejoicing at your moral firmness and in your faith in Christ. Those are military terms in the Greek. He's saying you're disciplined and like literally you lined up in the right spot, like you marching orders kind of sort of stuff is what he means there. 
And he makes this, this pitch at the end for other people. It's never singular. It's always corporate. He says, I love that you guys are lining up and preparing for, that you have your marching orders and you're, you're disciplined enough to, to, to live and walk them out because when it comes to following Jesus, we need other people. That's why we say at CBC, you can't do life alone. To put flesh on the context of the gospel, to help us when we have doubts, and to realize that we are in this with one another because we are all about the centrality of Jesus building out our culture because it's good for us. He ends by saying, I can't be with you, but I'm so joyful that you guys are doing this well. I'll tell you what, man, I love and I hate that sometimes you go through periods in life when you read scripture, and now I have a whole new appreciation when he says that I am present with you in spirit, but not in body. (laughs) Welcome to the last six months, you know? I have a whole new appreciation for Paul's longing and Paul's joy for them. A whole new appreciation for it, as I'm sure you do too. I remember when I was a kid, probably nine years old, Baseball was big in my family. Sports were big in my family, as you can tell by looking at me. And um, I wanted to quit baseball. And my dad didn't want me to quit baseball. I had this, this Jamaican coach who was tall and skinny. That's what he was in my mind. And um, I didn't want to play baseball. I was a small lad. Like, I'm, t- I'm talking like I was, I was the tiniest one in the lot, you know, and always the runt of the litter in the family. And uh, sure, it's fast and had great characters, what they told me, but, you know. Uh, and so I said I wanted to quit, and this big Jamaican coach would come up to me and be like, why? And I was like, well, I'm a little afraid of the baseball. We start kid pitch, you know. And he came up to me, and I'll never forget this. He puts the ball next to me. And I was probably, I don't know, four or five at that point, five feet, whatever. And I was probably nine years old. I don't know. I probably got all those wrong. Anyway, the point is he, he said, Charlie, how can something, and he did it in his accent, which is why it sticks out, this small hurt something this big. And I was like, because they throw it really hard. <laughs> like, think about it. That seems like that's just illogical. And, and so I, I made the decision that I really wanted to quit. And that Christmas, which is also my birthday, keep that in the back of your mind, um, at Christmas, my dad got me a baseball, an expensive baseball bat for Christmas. And I open it, and he looked at me and said, well, I guess I can't quit now. And I said, I guess I can't. I guess I can't. And I didn't. And baseball gave me so much joy as I grew up. It was one of my favorite sports I played in junior high and on my high school baseball team and in some select teams, and I just I loved it. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying that we need one another when doubts come to help us fall in line, form up together, draw on our experience, draw on God's love, and draw on how we flesh out the love and beauty of Jesus as we live with one another. Because at the end of the day, I agree with what that pastor said. I think that people don't leave the faith because they don't see Jesus as beautiful. <laughs> and in our culture, and this is what this church is trying to do, and hopefully it's, it's our hopes and dreams and heartbeat at CBC, hopefully we're a culture that focuses on the right things, that makes Jesus the center of who we are and who we're becoming so that people see all the good things that Jesus was as we live with the love of God, as we live into the love of God, as we live out the love of God in our community. So I'm going to end by reading the same verses I read at the beginning because it's the center of who we are and who we're becoming as we talk about what a Christ-centered culture in this community looks like in the next few months. It says, For Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, forgiveness for our sins. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things. 
And in him, all things hold together. He's also the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything for his God's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. And through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let me pray.